Bye, everybody. Win Claybaugh here, and welcome to another incredible, so needed issue of Masters. I know you're going to gain a lot from this, and this woman that I'm sitting with right now is not a stranger to Masters, and she's not a stranger to my world. And I have the opportunity to meet people, and then five minutes later, I'm interviewing them. I'm asking them questions. But with Taryn, with this woman that I'm interviewing today, uh, that is not our history. That is not our story. We have known each other for well over 30 years. And in 30 years, you, you see each other have all kinds of different life experiences. And the good news that I can share right now is that, Taryn, you and I have never judged each other, right? Amen. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We said, okay, you know, that's something that Wynn's going through. That's something that Taryn's going through. And and what they need right now is, is safety. They need love. They need support. And they're going to come out on the other side. And, and boy, of all the people that I know, and I know a lot of people, you have absolutely come out the other side with life stories and experiences and a message of hope and clarity that is so needed on this planet right now, uh, especially in the world of, of mental health, wellness, suicide prevention. So, Taryn, let me just straight up just thank you so, so much for being a part of this Masters podcast interview today. Oh, I'm honored. And I just need to say thank you to you because truly without people like you and, and you specifically, uh, you showed up for me at a time in my life when I desperately needed somebody to show up and be present and be there as I really navigated some uncertain times. So uh, thank you for being not only a tremendous mentor, but a dear friend. I love you. I love you too. And it's, I have to say it, it was easy, <laughs> which doesn't mean that all relationships are that way because all relationships are valuable and they all have purpose. Uh, some maybe drain you more than others. Some require uh, more attention than others. And for some reason, my relationship with you has always been one that has brought me so much joy and so much uh, purpose in life. So thank you for that. I want to uh, read this to give our, our listeners some more information about who you are. Taryn Aiken Hyatt is a dedicated advocate who shares her story and passion to give hope and educate our communities about suicide. She has testified before congressional members in Washington, DC to increase awareness and support for better access to mental health services and to promote healthy discussions about suicide and all things mental wellness. Now, Taryn has used her life experience and the loss of her father to suicide as a catalyst for change. She is widely respected throughout Utah. Why does this say Utah? I think it's it's a lot more than Utah, sweetheart. <laughs> I, I know people all over the, the planet who are, who are influenced by you. But Taryn is a, a graduate of Utah Valley University with a bachelor's degree in psychology and has been accepted into the master's in social work program beginning in August of 2022. So that's coming up. Yes, back to school. Back to school. At, at, at what age am I allowed to ask? At what yeah, age are you back to school? At 46. Well, before we started recording, we were talking about your two twin grandbabies. So you're a grandma now. So congratulations. Life is good. Life is beautiful. So, you know, straight up, I just want to ask you, what is mental health? 
mental health is a lot of things, right? It's our emotional, our spiritual, our sense of who we are in this world. And, you know, it's been so misunderstood for the bulk, I think, of, of at least our existence on this planet. And while we're continuing to make strides at, at understanding what it is, I think a lot of us have our own misconceptions, and that unfortunately keeps us from really engaging and living, you know, the best life that we can. And so for me, mental health is all about, you know, engaging in those, those parts of myself and being a whole person so that I'm filling my soul, my mind, and my spirit right all together. And mental health is really the key to living life well. You know, I, I love talking to people about conversations that matter because there's a lot of conversations that we have that really don't matter. We engage in conversations that even do damage gossip or just things that are petty that don't really go anywhere. I always give the example that people know more about the real housewives than they know about the latest research in breast cancer. Again, where are the conversations that truly matter? And nowadays, I mean, you can be watching a, a Netflix comedy special and almost every uh, presentation has something to do with COVID and with what we've been through in the last couple of years. And so there, there's comedy about it and and there are conversations and presentations and changes in business and politically and in all arenas of life because of collectively what the entire planet has been through in the last couple of years. I can't imagine how the conversations in your world have needed to change in the last couple of years when it comes to uh, mental health and wellness. And it's not just adults. Absolutely, it's not just adults. You know, to live in in communities where, you know, we felt a a little bit fortunate in that the school that our our daughter attends uh, was in a different county that that opened up uh, quicker than some of the kids who live in our neighborhood. And, And the kids that live in our neighborhood were in lockdown for a lot longer. So they were trying to learn from home and sometimes two working parents and, you know, for a child to be sitting in front of a screen and not have that physical engagement with their friends and with their teachers. Oh my gosh, what has changed in your world? And, and I think I've asked about a hundred questions already. And I'm just wondering about how do you take that on? Just, I mean, so much pain in the world and so much confusion all surrounded with this topic of mental health and wellness, that's a lot for you to take on. It is, you know, and we're talking a lot right now about this, this next wave of the pandemic. And really what it is, is the mental health crisis that our nation and, and really worldwide is facing. You know, the emotional and mental toll that the last few years have taken on us, not just with the global pandemic, but the social unrest, the injustice that we still continue to see you know, and you speak of these kids, you know, you look at what these kids are witnessing every single day, you know, another shooting in a school and and wondering and worrying if if that's going to be their outcome. You know, they do just need to be able to to play together. And and instead, you're right, having to sit in a home, you know, with mom and dad trying to work in different rooms and and them trying to learn on the internet, you know, and, and through a screen and missing that, that so needed social engagement you know, we're all paying the price. And and what we've learned, you know, more than ever is that mental health is so important. I think that's the one thing I'm so grateful for the pandemic 
is it really leveled the playing field. It got rid of some of the stigma because people who had never struggled with things like depression or anxiety before finally got an understanding as to what it is some of us deal with on a daily basis. It created empathy. It created understanding. But it also exposed the tremendous need we have for more support and services to help all of us cope with what life's going to be moving forward. You know, you just put yourself into that category. So as you were sharing this, what you said was people who never struggled before all of a sudden are having an understanding. They're having personal experience with what some of us deal with on a, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So you put yourself in that category and I, and I know why, because I know you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm definitely no stranger to mental health conditions. They run in my family. You know, that's something we learn is these are health issues that have a, you know, family origin. And, you know, I have a dad who suffered from severe depression. And unfortunately, as you know, you mentioned in my bio, he did go on to die by suicide. And, and that was largely a, a direct result of untreated depression. Um, depression is something that has been my companion since I was a young child at, at the age of eight. I experienced a pretty significant trauma um, being sexually abused, and that led me into this this just dark place where I didn't understand what was happening. My body, you know, experienced those feelings of sleeplessness. I, I would go nights without sleep because my brain would just be tormented by these things that had happened and trying to make sense of the world I was living in. And, you know, by the time I was a 12 year old, I had actively considered, you know, suicide and and no, nobody had talked to me about that. That's why I love to dispel this myth that parents are often afraid of, oh, we can't talk about that to our kids because then they'll do it. Guess what? Nobody had mentioned that word to me, but my brain did not know how to cope with the things that were happening. So instead it said, if you're not here, guess what? Problem solved. You don't have to cope. And so it was so fascinating to me that my own mind really tried to end me in order to save me. And so, yeah, I, I'm no stranger. You know, I thankfully had experiences that got me connected, unfortunately, due to attempting to end my own life, but it got me the, the medical and mental, you know, health that I needed. And I have a wonderful therapist who I've seen, I still see to this day, um, that really helped me learn some strategies and tools to be able to deal with the depression that I experience. Well, in the 22 plus your history of masters of me sitting down with brilliant people such as yourself and doing these interviews, we're solution oriented. So yeah, we're going to tell a story and you're going to tell your personal story. I love personal stories. You know, you're not just quoting what you heard uh, last week in your master's class, you know, you're sharing from life experience. And so just uh, maybe a heads up, everybody, this is all coming with solutions. This is all coming with, this is what we can do. This is what we should be doing. This is what the opportunities are for us to address this. And I think twice already, Taryn, you used the words uh, dispelling that stigma. Yeah. Talk about that stigma. Yeah, you know, we know the term stigma just is, again, a negative thought or belief. And for so many years, mental health was viewed as a sign of weakness, right? Or, or something to be ashamed about. My favorite, it's all in your head. Well, it is, it's in my mind, right? And instead, you know, we need to look that mental health is, it's my brain, it's an organ. 
So this is something that we all have. It lives on this continuum, right? It fluctuates between being healthy, being unwell, and something we need to look after. But because we haven't understood mental health, we've been afraid of it. And we know that when people are afraid, that tends to breed kind of this ignorance where we don't understand something. So instead, we perpetuate these things and beliefs about it that just aren't true. And so today, more than ever, we have to get educated about what mental wellness and mental health really is so that we can take these proactive steps to care for ourselves, to support people, and again, to look after those that we love and, and most importantly, us. I tell people all the time, I think sometimes the, the greatest stigma around mental health exists within ourselves because we want to be able to take care of the things that are coming in our lives by ourselves, right? Nobody wants to rely on other people and have to ask for help. We make it such drudgery, but I know we weren't sent to this earth to do life by ourselves. We need each other. And so we need to figure out better ways to support each other, especially now, you know, with the things that we're experiencing in the world. Can you share with us some data, some statistics about the percentage or the number of people who are impacted with mental health challenges? And by the way, what falls into that category of mental health challenges? Obviously, we're going to say things like bipolar and depression and suicide thoughts. We would also put into that category addiction. Mm -hmm. What would you put into that category and then give us some data? Yeah. So again, mental health is something we all have, but mental health can turn into what's called a mental illness or a mental health disorder. And that's when the brain becomes sick. And again, because the brain is an organ, it can get sick. And a sick brain usually manifests in behavior or other things. And so we know that one in five of us living on the earth today, so 20% of the population is living with a mental illness. And yes, like you mentioned, they're classified as things like depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. And yet these, these conditions, while they can be so debilitating when left untreated, are actually very treatable if we get people help sooner. You know, data tells us that most people who experience depression and anxiety will live with it up to 10 years before getting a proper diagnosis. Again, it manifests quite early. Um, most people who experience these things also have their first onset of symptoms around age 11. And so I know, you know, thinking of Sophia, your beautiful daughter, you know, as you watch her grow, I remember when I was that age, you know, that's when I started to experience this shift. We also know at that time they're going through puberty. So they're already experiencing these chemical changes in their body. And sometimes the brain isn't able to catch up. And so when you start to notice, right, these the symptoms, if you will, where, where they're expressing, you know, physical changes that they're feeling, nervousness, tummy aches, you know, a lot of kids who experience anxiety, that's the easiest way parents can know that they're struggling is they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach today or my tummy hurts. And that's because this beautiful chemical that regulates our mood is made in our gut, right? Serotonin. And so it's so interesting that, again, there's, there's such this complexity in our, our body, and yet we don't often understand what it is. And so, so many people, as mentioned, are living with these conditions and not getting appropriate help. Uh, again, data tells us that only about two out of three teens who are living with depression are actually getting help for it, you know? And so that's- Can you say that, that again? What's that? That's just, you said- Two out of three teens who have depression are not getting appropriate help and treatment. Wow. And, and so that means only one in three is. And so again, we know these are common 
But yet for a teenager to be going through this, this depression and anxiety without help and support, you know, can lead to some detrimental consequences like substance use, like thoughts and feelings of suicide. So it's definitely something we need to take note and again, get educated about so we can recognize these things sooner. Wow. You, you said a couple of things. You said that a, a little kid, that the words that they might use is I have a tummy ache today. Mm-hmm. Headache. And of course, mom and dad are going to listen up. Oh, they've got a tummy ache. Let's mm-hmm. address that. Let's keep them home from school. If the little kid said, I feel depressed or I, you know, those, those aren't words that a little kid, maybe even a teenager couldn't express. And it's funny, we, we, we could have a little cough, a little tickle in our throat, and we will immediately run to the pharmacy or even run to our doctor to address it. But we'll feel these other symptoms, these other emotions of depression or anxiety or confusion for weeks, and you say even years, and yet we never seek the professional help. Yeah. I have a dear friend who's a a child psychiatrist here in the state of Utah, Dr. Doug Gray, and he and I were having this conversation once, you know, where, again, when people experience, you know, a bout of severe depression, it's recommended that you go inpatient into a hospital for a period of at least two weeks so that the brain chemicals can be, you know, regulated, that your sleep can be monitored, that your eating can be monitored. And none of us do that. One, because we don't have coverage to be able to have that be covered for a two-week stay, but most of us are still showing up to work, right? Pushing through when you're right. We'll stay home for a cold or, you know, if I'm throwing up, I'm not going to go out, but we push ourselves so hard when really mentally sometimes we just need to take that break and really seek, you know, professional help to get our brain back in a, a normal thought pattern. How does that show up for you? And then what do you do about it? So again, you, you've got degrees, you study this, you talk about it. This is a, a career that you have created based on these topics. But personally for you, how does that show up? You, yeah, you, you know, I, I'm well aware of my warning signs when depression's creeping back in for me. And, and for me, it's really these changes in my behavior. Um, my husband will tell you, I'll go days where I will not shower. Again, I don't care about my personal appearance. Um, I won't sleep. Sleep is the first one that gets affected for me. If I go, you know, two, three nights without sleep, and then that sleep, as we know, is such a huge tool for benefiting our mental health, because it's the only time our brain can rest and actually clean itself out from the things that it experiences throughout the day. You know, my diet will change. I I won't have an appetite or I'll want to eat everything in sight. You know, and so when I start to notice and my biggest telltale is my mood, you know, I'm typically a pretty nice person. It's rare that I like snap at people. But if I catch myself being really short or yelling, you know, I remember one day I I yelled at a lady on the phone and I thought, what in the world? And so it's those little, you know, shifts in my own behavior that just aren't normal for me. Um, Those are indicators that, you know, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed and I need to take note and do something to take care of myself. You say that your husband notices or he knows what the signs are too, but have the two of you sat down to have those conversations? Hey, you're my husband. You're my spouse. You're who I count on. Can you, uh, you know, let me know when you see a shift in, in this behavior and maybe he has the same conversation with you and you have that agreement with him that maybe you see a shift in 
and some of his behavior. Do you personally have that agreement yes, with each other? We do. And, and that's because, again, when you live with a health condition, right, same as if I had diabetes or heart disease, like I, my family members would need to know how to watch, right, for certain things in case maybe I wasn't taking care of myself and my diabetes got out of control or, right, I wasn't managing that. Like there's signs and symptoms we learn so that we can help. And it's the same with our mental health. And, you know, the thing with me is sometimes I won't recognize it right away. I need somebody to call attention to it because I want to get ahead of it sooner than later. Because the longer I go, I just get stuck in that spinning cycle to where I don't even recognize sometimes how far down I've gone. And so I've needed him to call attention and say, hey, I notice, right? Definitely, I encourage him to use nice words to me. But I'd say, you know, say things like I noticed, you know, I noticed you didn't shower today. Does that mean you just didn't care? Or maybe you just didn't have time, right? Maybe you got too busy. But we always share that a change in behavior is a telltale sign that somebody's mental health is changing. Again, doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad thing, but something's changing. And so when we can be aware of each other's behaviors and just say, yeah, you know, hey, I noticed. I always tease him. If he were to ever leave my house without drinking his ginormous jug of water that he drinks every morning, that would be a behavior that would cause me to say, hey, you know, you do this every single day. You didn't do it today. Why not? Right. And it might just be that he's running late or maybe something came up. But that's a behavior I count on him to do each morning. If he didn't do it, that would tell me something was happening. Does that make sense? Oh, totally makes sense. Yeah. And as you're talking, I have a feeling that our listeners are starting to dispel some of the stigmas that they have about mental health and wellness and and mental illness. And I like what you say, that the brain is an organ. There's no shame when there's an infection of other organs in the body, and we will address it. But for some reason, that organ, the brain, which, by the way, controls the entire body, we will ignore it. Yeah. You know, I work for a suicide prevention organization, and and we only implemented doing wellness days, you know, a couple years back. And think about that just even in the, the workplace, right, is we have to take a sick day. If we need a breather, some of us have even pretended we were ill, right? Because we knew that mentally we just needed a day to catch up on sleep or maybe catch up on tasks or maybe just do nothing. And so how cool is it that we're starting to see that shift where people are like, no, I need to be able to just say, hey, you know what, today I need to do something nice for myself so that I can live right more mentally well. And we're moving away from having to call them sick days and actually encourage this culture that says, hey, wellness matters and and we have to take time for ourselves. Okay, so let's jump into this because you're going to provide some solutions here. I remember Um, gosh, almost 20 years ago or 18 years ago when we launched what is called the Andrew Gomez Dream Foundation within my organization. And Andrew himself was a team member who died of suicide. And and that was just shocking and disruptive and heartbreaking and, and so many other adjectives that I could use. And so we felt like the solution to deal with this heartbreak was to start this nonprofit organization. And I remember because we launched this and people said, well, what's the story? Who's Andrew? And we told the story by telling the story that Andrew died of suicide, that we were vocal about it, that it all of a sudden maybe gave people hope or it gave them permission to talk about 
whatever it is that they might be struggling with. Like they were just holding their breath until we said, this is Andrew. He was important to us and he died a suicide. Until we did that and said those words and, and started putting a spotlight on it, I think people were afraid to talk about it. And, and because of that, now all these many years later, we try to make it on the forefront. We try to make it an important topic of the responsibility that we have, the opportunity that we have a business leader. So this isn't just what happens at home, what happens in our marriages. This is something that we need to talk about and find solutions in the workplace as well. And I love what you talked about that the companies are, are implementing mental wellness days rather than sick days, mental wellness days. And so, yeah, there is a bit of a shift there. But do you have statistics too on the loss in revenue and, and the cost in wages and, and all kinds of things when it comes to mental illness in the workplace and what it causes? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I could rattle off a few numbers, but I'll tell you, you know, when we look at even just the loss of life, okay, so working aged adults who die by suicide, you know, that represents about 60% of total suicides. And it's estimated to cost the United States about $69 billion. Again, this is lost wages where they could be here, you know, productive members of society contributing and paying back. And so when we're looking at, you know, trying to increase, you know, a company's return on investment, you know, when you invest in your employees, when you're investing in their wellness, you know, then they're not taking the sick days, they're not missing work. We talk about this connection too between our physical and mental health, right? When I'm mentally unwell, I feel physically sick. And so when you're increasing this capacity to support people, again, you minimize these sick days, you minimize people wanting to take time off because they feel fulfilled, they feel valued, and they feel supported. Uh, we've done this a lot right now with our construction industry. Construction actually has one of the highest rates of suicide of any industry. And when we start looking at why, you know, we look at some of the unique factors. It's a tough guy culture. You know, it's mostly men who work there. There's a lot of isolation. They work on the road. They're away from their families. There's a lot of substance use in that industry. And so this was also a, an industry that said, okay, we want to tackle this, but we're going to have to go completely against the grain of everything we've done. You know, we can't be the yellers anymore. We have to have these, you know, toolbox talks where we actually get our guys to open up and talk about their mental health and what they're experiencing. And wow. it's just been neat to see, right, that they're recognizing that, hey, when I invest in my people and instead of, you know, hammering them for not doing the job right the first time, because that's typically what we do. Instead, we say, no, let me learn more about what was maybe going on, you know, why? So there is a huge shift and it's important, you know, and, and with Andrew, I, I remember that so vividly because we attended school together all those years ago at Von Curtis and, and yeah, you know, you never would have known that Andrew struggled with the things that he had struggled with because again, stigma, right. Kept us from, from talking openly about those things. And yet, just like when he died, we, we saw the same thing with our dad when we spoke openly about what took him, about the fact that suicide happened. People wanted to be able to talk openly because they'd experienced it too. And I love, I know this sounds creepy, but when I read obituaries today, you know, I love when people say my loved one died of depression or my loved one died of substance use disorder, you know, because we're talking about it today. We're no longer hiding in the shadows so people can't get the help that they need. Well, so mental health lives on a continuum. So what does that mean? 
Yeah, you know, it means that our mental health ebbs and flows, right? Most of us can recognize that we wake up in the morning and, and, you know, some days we're feeling better than others, but that there's also things that we can do throughout our day that either help us to feel better or make us feel worse. And so when we recognize that we can flow from feeling healthy to now, maybe I'm starting to struggle a little bit, you know, maybe I got yelled at at work, or maybe I had a fight with my spouse. So I'm kind of in that weird space of of not really coping well, you know, we need to take action sooner than later. What I find is most people wait, and I think we can all attest to this, we let our cup of water get full to the very tip top till it's ready to spill over before we'll say, all right, I need to do something to take care of myself today. So we wait till we're ready to explode, right? Before we say no, what little, and I always go back to forward focus, you know, that you taught me in, in Paul Mitchell world, you know, what little 10% shift can I take? What little step can I take today to reduce my stress or to, you know, help my brain feel better? Can I go for a walk? Can I listen to a song? You know, do I turn off my email for a couple hours just to breathe and catch up? You know, what little step can I take today to help me feel better? And that's what we need to be more, you know, focused on is is not waiting until we're in crisis mode to say, crap, I should have done something, you know, take care of me. But we wait, we wait too long. So how do I recognize when mental health is deteriorating? How do I recognize that in myself and in my loved ones? Uh, The the signs, and I know that you shared some of this, but uh, I know you have a, a lot more up your sleeve, so. Yeah, you know, a lot of times it's there's really three categories that we see people um, kind of engaging in that let us know their mental health is deteriorating. First, it's the talk, right? It's the things that they're saying. Um, most of us know people who who maybe are really negative in their dialogue. They're always talking about the things that are going wrong, and and that seems to be kind of an obsessive pattern. And that happens with us when we're struggling and and depressed or dealing with anxiety is we're hyper focused on on the negative. Uh, Daniel Amen, another good friend of ours, you know, talks about these ants and it's an automatic negative thought. The brain is prone to those when we're not doing well, when we're stressed out, right? We can see that, you know, that's when we start being gossipy and, and, and not so nice is when we're not feeling good. You know, another one is our behavior. We might isolate, pull away from people. Again, our sleep might change. Our eating habits might change. Our hygiene could change. And then mood is a huge one. You know, a lot of people, I think, assume that when we're mentally unwell, you know, it's that we're sad. But again, maybe it's anger, you know, it's rage. Maybe there's no emotion in a person. They just seem really apathetic. And so when we see and sense those those energies, you know, or, or we're hearing the statements that seem really negative or the behavior that just isn't normal. Again, it's a chance to check in and say, hey, you know, talk to me. I saw this. You said this. Hey, I noticed right? And you name the thing that you saw. Again, sometimes, like I mentioned, it's like with my husband, it draws attention to the thing. Sometimes people don't recognize that's what they're doing. It might call them, you know, to maybe take a look, but it gives us a chance to just check in and say, I'm worried about you, you know, talk to me about what's going on. Your behavior has me concerned or the thing you said has me worried. I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. How many kids do you have? I have two. And through your journey, I'm sure that you're not hiding this from your kids. Oh, heavens you're, no. You're, you're having this <laughs> these conversations with your kids. What does that look like over the years? I mean, they're, they're grown adults now yeah. having their own babies. What has that looked like for you 
over the years. Well, and I have to tell you, one of the most powerful tools I ever learned, and I wished I would have learned it way, way earlier in my, my parenting career, but, you know, I attended the Palmenchel schools, you know, five day that we used to go to that, that taught us all the culture. And, and you taught me about forward focus. And it came from that book from Stephen Van Oy, right? The 10 greatest gifts I give my children. Right. And, you know, that, that really opened my eyes to how to communicate with my kids and, it didn't mean that we ignored the things that were going wrong, right? We talked about them. We owned it. We were honest about what was really happening. We recognized it. And then we started to look at what we could do different. You know, my kids and I used to sit at the dinner table and, and while, yes, we would talk about the hard stuff. We always started our night together with what was the best thing that happened to you today? And I'll never forget my cute Caitlin, you know, she'd say, mom, aren't you going to ask me my thing? If I wouldn't, remember, <laughs> right. Aren't you going to ask me my thing? And, you know, that just prompted a a safety in my home that said, you know what, I want to know. I want to know what's going on in your world. I always told my kids, too. I said, you know, you can always tell me the truth. Lies I'll struggle with. Lies I might get mad. But, you know, if you tell me the truth, I'll always listen and I'll always have your back. And I just made sure that my kids got to see me reach out and get help. I never hid that. Brene Brown said it best. You know, she said that. If we as parents don't model help-seeking behavior, our kids will never attach value to it. And my kids watched me get sober. My kids watched me learn how to manage my depression, you know, and saw that I got help. So when it became something that they too struggled with, they knew they could come to me. They knew they could tell me what they were thinking. And they knew that there would be help available because they saw that I accessed it too. Wow. I mean, what, what a powerful lesson. Yeah, because we do hide the struggles and the help seeking behavior. And for some reason, don't model that behavior, not only for our kids, but for our friends, for the other people. Yeah, I, I love a boss. I love a friend who is vulnerable and open and transparent when it comes to stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Well, again, that's what you were for me, right? I I knew of some of your struggles. And so that's why I was able to come to you when I was struggling with substance and say, I need help, right? I need help. And again, as a boss, you didn't turn me away. You know, yeah, I want to see you get clean. Show me a clean drug test. We'll talk. But you gave me a chance. And, you know, that's what people need in this life is, you know, I I think back to even our construction friends, right? You know, usually if a person would come up with a dirty UA or, you know, a a dirty drug test, you're fired on the spot. Well, that only perpetuates the cycle for some people to be able to get help and support. You know, they need to be given a chance and provided tools for recovery. And and you gave me that chance and I was able to find those tools for recovery. So, again, I, I just want you to know how much you really have played an instrumental role in my life and and where I'm at today. I'm not sure that that was totally on purpose uh, (laughs) because you know how people say, Hey, when is this is, this is business. It's not personal when it's just business. And when anybody ever said that to me, I was always confused by that. Like what? It's all personal for me. Maybe sometimes I should have swung the pendulum more towards making uh, legitimate business decisions. But for me, it was, it was always personal. And so, yes, if, if personal crisis is coming up and it just so happens to be with somebody that I love and I work with, well, then, of course, this is personal. And that's the decision that we're going to make. What does this person need on a personal level, not what's best for the company right now? 
Well, I wish more were like you, but you've been a great example in that. Well, thank you. And it is hopeful to hear the, the stories that you're sharing with the construction industry. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what other industries, I'm, I, now I'm curious, what other industries are, are really seeing the need to, to take this on? Well, who was I talking? Oh, uh, this good friend, Melissa Amaguchi, who works, uh, gets uh, hired a lot to come in and, and talk with teachers. And I just can't imagine. Yes, we talk about how difficult it was for our kids to to be quarantined and to be at home, you know, virtually on the computer trying to get through third grade or sixth grade. What about those teachers? Mm-hmm. Oh, our teachers went through the ringer last year. I have a, a sweet sister who's a high school teacher, and more times than not, you know, we spent hours on the phone just with her in tears, trying to figure out how to navigate all the things being thrown at them and. And the pressure and, you know, teachers are somebody we targeted a long time ago in the the effort to really help youth, because we know that teachers not only, you know, are teaching our kids, but they also see our kids in a different light than we may see them. And and so they have such this kind of instrumental part of, of recognizing behaviors and things that we may not see. But you're right. You know, I actually was invited to speak at a conference this next week where we're looking at how do we support our teachers mental health? because they really went through it last year. Um, You know, I'm working with the, oh gosh, Chamber of Commerce and and all these businesses, you know, Morton and Company, who is an insurer that that helps other companies bring in folks for for mental health. You know, West Valley City here in my local state of Utah, you know, I did a health fair for their employees. I mean, I think really, like I mentioned, the, the pandemic opened people's eyes to the need for mental health support and information. I did more lunch and learns, meaning Zoom meetings during people's lunch break during 2020 and 2021 than ever before in my life. And again, they were all focused on educating people about mental health, what it looks like when it's declining and where people can get help and support. And I think we'll continue to see that happen. I think that goes back to what we were talking about before that by you talking about it or by the company sponsoring somebody like you to come in and talk, wait, she's not going to come in and talk about sales. Mm-hmm. She's not coming in to talk to us about our, our dress code and our, she's here to talk about mental health and wellness, what the company cares about me on yeah. that level. I just can't imagine that it's not providing loyalty and and really, again, conversations that matter that are absolutely going to impact the bottom line of that company. But man, you're opening up all kinds of doors for people to have these types of honest, honest, necessary conversations. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into treatment. What does treatment look like? Yeah. And I love, I love that, you know, we have to look at what we can do. You know, the thing about mental health is treatment is going to look different for each one of us, right? Because we're so unique as humans, there's going to be different things that will speak to one of us or another. I was on a call just earlier today and, you know, I'm somebody who has benefited from having a therapist. I'm a talker, go figure. I was a hairdresser, right? It's what we do. But, you know, I love to talk and communicate and I needed somebody who I could talk openly with. So I engaged really well in person-to-person therapy. Some people don't though. There's individuals who don't want to talk. And so maybe, you know, using an art form or, you know, equine therapy where they're out with animals and and in nature, you know, some people love to draw and, and, and share their emotions that way. 
You know, we know that medication can be a part of treatment for mental health. Just like with diabetes, you have to take insulin to manage that. Well, guess what? Some of us, our brain doesn't make the specific chemicals like serotonin and, you know, glutamate and other neurotransmitters. We might need to take something to supplement that. It could even come in the form of supplements, right? Doesn't even have to be medication, but there's so many avenues to explore, you know, meditation, art therapy, I think I already mentioned art therapy, but there's just so many things that we can explore for getting help and support. The key though, that I think people need to understand is treatment is something that helps us feel better soon. And we need that. We need to feel some relief quickly when we're struggling, but that it also will improve as we continue to engage in it. And and the other thing that's important for folks to understand is medication by itself is not the answer. That's the same as if I only drank, you know, a glass of wine every night versus trying to figure out ways to de-stress. You know, we know that when we just medicate, we're not dealing with the actual thing that's causing us the stress or the grief. Um, in fact, when we looked at, at suicide deaths, about 30% of all suicides were medication-only patients. This, again, means that if they didn't have some of those coping strategies and other tools to manage you know, the anxiety and the depression, that they didn't have as effective of outcomes um, by just using that, that med. So making sure that you know, you're combining kind of the whole person, you know, that we're treating the body, we're treating the mind, but we're also treating our soul and spirit. I think this whole conversation right now is providing hope for people, because I'm sure people right now are listening to this thinking, the only way to address mental health challenges is medication. I'm not going to take a pill. I don't like what it does to me. I gain weight. I turn into a zombie. I'm I'm against aspirin or any kind of medication. I'm not going to do that, so I'm screwed. Uh, or I got to see a therapist. I don't I don't have the resources for that. I don't like to sit down and talk about my feelings and emotions. And what you're doing is. No, there's, there are other options as well. So art, art therapy and animal therapy, talk about those. And because I'm sure that you've seen the, the results of those people who have gone down that path. Absolutely. And one of my favorites is actually with our military and our veterans. Um, I have a, a good friend, his name is Josh Hansen, who runs a a support group, if you will, for veterans, and it's called Continue Mission. He says, you know, our veterans who are suffering from severe PTSD and these other, you know, things, you know, they don't necessarily want to go sit and talk to a therapist, especially somebody who isn't a veteran who doesn't understand where they've been. He said, so instead we get together and we go do activities. You know, we go up the canyon, we go on rock climbing hikes and different things. We, you know, we go ride horses, we go connect with nature. They call it continue mission because they still have that community of support and connection with each other and with people who, who get it. But it's not the traditional, you know, sit on the therapist's couch, spill all my beans, because for them, that maybe isn't always helpful. So it's really important that we find ways to engage people in something that feels good to them. Um, I have a youth group here that I work with that does the same thing for teens, right? Maybe a kid doesn't want to sit and have that that one-on-one therapy, but if they can draw, if they can, you know, write music to express their their thoughts and feelings, that's more more apt to give them some relief. So it really is unique to the individual, and we got to be willing to find those things that work for you. So parents listening to this are also thinking the same thing. I I don't necessarily want to have to medicate my child. Mm-hmm. So what, what are the resources for parents 
I mean, I maybe I'm I'm trying to drive it home too much, but no, you know, for I you to tell them, great. you know, yeah. get your kids involved in this or or that organization or get them out onto a farm or I guide definitely. Us yeah, definitely. And I think the first thing that that parents want to do is, you know, start with your primary care doctor if you're concerned about your child. Because keep in mind where we talked about mental health and physical health symptoms looking similar, we don't always know what the motivator is. You know, it could be something else. Um, you know, it could be their diet. Again, none of us are eating that great these days. I know it's some of us are better at it than others, but you know, energy drinks and the stuff that we use to just kind of give us that quick get up and go, you know, sugar for kids, you know, some of that stuff really impacts them. In fact, I have a, a niece who found out that that red dye number 40 causes her to just kind of go off the charts with anxiety when they took that out of her diet she's really been able to manage much better. So there's so much out there that we can understand and, and learn more about. And so again, starting with a doc to just kind of get a feel for what your child is experiencing and, and get some recommendations. Diet and exercise go a long way. You know this, when we get active, when we're outside, when we work out, I'm not a fan of it, but every time I do it, I'm like, I'm so glad I did because it releases those endorphins in our body and it helps us feel better. You know, when we eat stuff that's good for us, it fuels us from the inside. So sometimes it's just going back to the basics. But yeah, looking to your local communities, there's a, a really lovely organization called NAMI. And NAMI stands for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And they have free, that's my favorite part about it, free support groups for families, support groups for kids and teens who are living with things like depression and anxiety, so that one, they can learn more about the illness, how to better manage it, but then also be with others to learn from others, right? When you sit in a support group, number one, you figure out you're not alone, but then you can also gain strength when you're like, oh, that worked for you. Maybe I'll try that. So there's a lot of really cool tools that we can find. And in today's world, my goodness, everything on the internet, right? There's virtual support groups. There's Zoom meetings that people are able to join, chat features that folks can utilize, things like Trevor Project and, you know, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline even has a chat feature where people can just talk to somebody, you know, that's a bystander, if you will, that doesn't have that emotional connection to you, or you can get some, you know, unbiased advice if need be. So there's a lot, there's a lot that we can, we can access today. You, you mentioned our, our good friend and mentor, Dr. Amen, And I remember him sharing a list of things that people should diminish or completely eliminate from their lives if they are struggling with some sort of mental health issue. And things that were on that list included things like alcohol, lack of sleep, uh, toxic friendships, too much caffeine. There's a whole bunch of things. And I remember looking at the, that list thinking, wait a minute, the entire planet should follow that list. <laughs> right? Maybe some people are thinking, gosh, sucks for you. I can engage in this behavior and, and eat this way and, and and go for days and weeks with only three hours of sleep a night. And I am just fine, but sex for you that you can't do that. Yeah. I think you know, mental health and wellness is everybody's responsibility. It's not just those who are struggling. It's everybody's responsibility. 
Absolutely. Because again, we're each responsible for the energy we bring to this universe, right? To this world, to this life. And we're only responsible for ourselves. We can't control another human. Dang it. You know, I know some of us wish we could, but, you know, we need to take that ownership and responsibility for what we bring. And I think of that, you know, ever present in today's world, you know, as again, we see some of these traumatic things that are happening. You know, if our world was mentally well, if we were all really actively working on our own wellness, how much more of a beautiful space would it be to live and exist, you know, here on this planet? So I'm with you. I I think we each need to take a a good hard look in the mirror and say, you know what, what am I willing to do to truly not just live my best life, but bring my best self to the people who I interact with on a daily basis. As we start to wrap this up. So how do we equip ourselves with what to do when someone discloses a mental health issue? You you talk about mental health first aid. How do I have a real conversation about mental health? Yeah, there's a tremendous training and it's one that I've been a trainer for for years, but I love it. Um, You know, we all have learned throughout the course of our life, uh, you know, basic CPR or some kind of first aid triage, right? In case we were to ever interact with somebody who was having a, uh, you know, physical, if you will, emergency. Well, why don't we take that next step and look at how do we support somebody who's having a mental health crisis? Because the likelihood that we engage with somebody in a mental health crisis, as opposed to having to actually administer CPR, is, is much higher. And, you know, in today's world, we have such a shortage of providers and people who can really get in to to seek those services. So there's a training called Mental Health First Aid. And if you were just to Google that, Mental Health First Aid, it would take you to the National Council on Mental Wellbeing's website, and you can find a training in your community. Mental Health First Aid trains each of us to be what's called a mental health first aider. It gives us some basic skills and tools for how to respond to somebody who's experiencing or developing a mental health crisis. Um, You learn how to, again, recognize, reach out, support them, and then connect them to appropriate resources. I've used that mental health first aid training more times in my life than I I could share in this interview. But, you know, it's been a skill and tool that I have appreciated because it helps me know how to show up for people in those moments. And as I mentioned, now more than ever, you know, we're experiencing a mental health crisis in our world and we need to have those skills and tools to be there for each other. Maybe it's uh, too lengthy to get into. What are the things that we absolutely should not do? The mistakes that people make when, and I love the analogy that you gave that it's people are certified in CPR, but they're not certified in things to do with mental health first aid. Yeah, I think the mistakes that we typically make is when we come in with judgment, you know, we talked about that in the very beginning of this interview, you know, when you come in with a judgment or an expectation of how somebody should be or behave, you're setting yourself up for failure and you're setting them up for it too. Instead, we need to come in with inclusion and compassion, you know, don't try to fix people. As soon as I try to fix somebody, I just told them they were broken. Validate people. Acknowledge that what they're going through is hard. You know, encourage. Encourage them to get support. Sometimes we want to come in with all of our advice. Well, guess what? Most of us don't want advice. You know, something I say all the time is don't should on people. You know, how many of you have ever been told, well, you should do 
And that shuts us down. You know, instead, recognize that people are doing the best they can with what they have. And they may not have the skills and tools that you do. So be present, listen, be willing to hear their pain and their, their darkness and sit with them in it. Sometimes being silent is the best thing you can do. Just listen. You know, and I love the analogy I heard a few years ago that said, listen and silent have the same letters. That blew my mind. I went, what? That's how I know I'm being a good listener is I'm not talking. Ooh, <laughs> so I think, uh, right? I've There's never heard that. Of, listen I know. and silent have the same letters. Same letters. Um, well, this is incredible. And I, I, I knew going into this that what we would be doing would be to just open a door, just open a door of consciousness, of conversation, of just thought you might like to know that there's some hope here, whether it's for ourselves personally or for those that we we love and care about. Um, Taryn, do you have a final message for our listeners? My final message would just simply be this, you know, if you're listening to this right now and, and you're in that, that place, that, that dark night of the soul that says, I just can't do it one more minute. Rest, you know, rest, float if you have to. I love that quote, just keep swimming, but sometimes we don't even need to swim. We just need to float for a minute. Tell somebody, tell somebody you trust and tell as many people as you have to until you find that person who is willing to sit with you. There is help and there is hope. You know, if your brain is believing that lie that nobody cares and, and you don't matter, I'm here to tell you that I care and you do matter. Um, I want us to support people as we go through this life. I don't want people to feel that there isn't any other option because there is. And so reach out, you know, do the brave thing. It is not weak to ask for help. It's actually a sign of strength. And your life matters, and we need you here. Well, uh, having lost a brother to suicide and understanding that this is such an important topic and something that we all need to just be very, very aware of and sensitive and proactive uh, and knowing that I have advocates such as you in my corner gives me that hope that I need every day. And I love and appreciate you so much. And I know that you're going to serve that purpose for thousands and thousands of people who are going to listen to this. So Taryn, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I love you dearly. I appreciate you so much. Thanks, everybody. Bye.